You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. So, welcome everybody this afternoon, and we're happy to have a great panel this afternoon talking about the uncertainty of the Gulf region, and everybody knows that Trump is playing on the uncertainty, and we are just a few days ahead of the deadline for um, his position on the Iran deal, the GCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. My name is Bitte Hammergren, and uh, together with me I have a panel with Peter Wiesemann from CIPRI, who's a senior researcher, and you just presented uh, the other day uh, CIPRI's global data on military expenditure, and you will elaborate on what's, what the situation is like in the Gulf region. And uh, next is Ruspe Parsi, who is an associate with our institute. And I think many of you are familiar with Ruspe, and Ruspe will help us to explain what are actually the options now? What might Trump do? How will Iran respond? And what are the options for the Europeans? We have also, yes, we've seen recently Macron and Merkel visiting Washington, trying to tame Trump, maybe. And then we have Dina Esfandiari from King's College in London at the War Studies Department, right? <laughs> Not the War Department. <laughs> And uh, you will explain to us the rifts on the Arabian Peninsula. The GCC, the Gulf Corporation Council, used to be the only good example of the, the Arab world, but now it's imploded with the uh, deep rifts between some of the monarchies there. And um, with this introduction, uh, I will just leave a few minutes for the ground rules of today. If you wish to tweet, you may use the hashtag UIEvent. It will be recorded, so it will be available to, to um, the public at large uh, after the seminar. And there's also one final request. We need to be sharp on time. So when we finish the seminar, can I kindly ask you to try to leave the premises as soon as possible, because the, the, the guards and other will not be available to open the doors. So with that introduction, please, Peter. Phone there, and I think I succeeded with that, so that's a good thing there. So what I will do is I will try to talk about militarization in the Gulf region, and I will look at two indicators which we can use to establish whether or not there is really a process of militarization in the region. Um, and that is military expenditure and arms import data. And that's what we are very well known for at Cyprus, so that's why I use that information. Now, of course, you could also use many other indicators to establish the level of militarization in the region, and maybe that will come up later in uh, the discussions which we will have. When I talk about militarization, what I mean to say is that the, how states are preparing themselves in, with military means to deal with the security threats which they perceive, but of course also to uh, implement the foreign policies they have, uh, implement the foreign policies which, for example, may be aimed at um, uh, expanding their influence, becoming a regional or even a global uh, leader. So now, before I start talking about 
um, the region as a whole, I think I should show you the global picture. Because the global picture shows us that there are things going on in the Middle East, which is only a relatively small region in terms of size, in terms of economy, in terms of the size of the population. And if we look at the global picture, and here's a nice little pointer there, that's the US, which of course is the largest. Then we have China, another very large country with a very large economy. But then at the third place in 2017, and for that matter also in 2015, we find Saudi Arabia. Oops, that's the wrong button. We find Saudi Arabia here, that one. Um, the third place, and that for a country which has a population of something like 30 million, um, an economy which is by far not as large as that of uh, China or the US. After that comes Russia, India, uh, and major states such as the UK, France, and Germany. So Saudi Arabia really sticks out there. And that is an indication that the region, or at least Saudi Arabia, is uh, clearly militarized. And when we then look a bit closer at the uh, region in detail, the Middle East, and then of course um, a focus on the Gulf region, um, we get this picture. And Saudi Arabia is of course the largest. But there are some other observations we can make. One is um, the question marks. There are a few significant states which we don't have good information in 2017. Even back to 2015, we don't have information for the UAE. And for Qatar, we only have information somewhere uh, like 10 years ago. So we really have a gap of information there in military spending data. Um, but we can substitute there, and I will do that later with data on arms, uh, on, on, on arms imports, which provide us uh, a good idea of what's going on there in terms of uh, armaments and military capability. The other observation we can make based on this uh, picture uh, is uh, what we see over here, and that is the military expenditure as a percentage of the uh, gross domestic product, the BNP. And we see that especially the countries in red have a very high level of military spending, military burden, military spending as percentage of GDP. Um, a country like um, Saudi Arabia has, in our estimates, a military burden of 10%. 10% of its economic resources basically go to military spending, and that's an awful lot. In the world, on average, it's about 2.1%, 2.2%, just to give you a bit of an order of magnitude there. Um, for uh, the, the next observation, which I think we need to make here, is the great um, asymmetry which we see if we look at Saudi Arabia um, and Iran. Saudi Arabia by itself spends so much more uh, than Iran. And then, of course, we can assume that there is significant spending um, in the UAE and Qatar too. So let's have a look a little bit um, at the long-term trends. Um, here we see the green line is the spending by uh, Saudi Arabia. And we see a very steep uh, rise here over the past 15 years, and especially here in the last eight years, reaching a peak in 2015. Then, of course, there's a fall. Explanation is simple. The oil price goes down a lot. Uh, Saudi Arabia doesn't have the, uh, uh, the revenue to continue that high level of spending. But despite that, they still continue a very high level of spending for such a rel relatively small country. And um, they also start to increase again in 2017. Um, the, the graph for the, for the UAE, um, and that is um, this one, 
the reddish one, is also interesting to look at. It stops in 214, um, but if we assume that the UAE has roughly kept its military spending stable over the past few years, then its spending is probably somewhere in the region of 20 to 25 billion a year. Um, compare that to Swedish military spending, for example. And then here is uh, Iran, uh, sorry, here is Iran, uh, much lower military spending actually declined only in the past few years due to the lifting of the sanctions and the economic uh, uh, possibilities that gives uh, military spending increases uh, somewhat uh, in the last few years. Now, if we then look at what this military spending goes to, of course it goes to personnel and all those things, but one of the things we can use to establish the militarization in the region is also look, look, looking at arms procurement. And it happens to be that CIPRI uh, collects information and transfers that into statistics about arms imports. In the region, arms imports are roughly equal to um, arms procurement, because basically none of the states in the region has a well-functioning arms industry. Um, Iran has had an arms industry for many years, but it doesn't really produce anything of great value. It is very old-fashioned, outdated equipment. Of course, with one important exception, and that is the missiles, the ballistic missiles, which it can produce and does produce. They are not really high-tech, but they are a very clear, important element of the military capability of Iran. Um, and particularly as a deterrent, a terror weapon which uh, Iran can use to threaten other states in case they would pose a direct threat to Iran. The other states, however, um, sorry, um, the other states also don't have an arms industry and are very, very dependent uh, on um, arms imports, therefore. So let's have a look at the arms import uh, figures and data. And again, now we see here the circles depict the kind of the relative size of arms imports over a five-year period, 2013 to 2017, by countries in the Middle East. Not surprising, there it is, Saudi Arabia, the largest importer in the region. And here we also see again a confirmation of the fact that also the UAE and increasingly Qatar are very significant military players in the region. They are major arms import porters in the region. Iran, again, stands out. It has uh, a very few arms imports. Two reasons for that. One, it doesn't really have the money. And the other one is that it's still under United Nations arms embargo. It can't really acquire uh, advanced, sophisticated weapons from abroad, with a few exceptions. So for the coming years, in 2020, that embargo is to be lifted, and then we'll see what happens then. Maybe the picture will be a bit like this. Back to Iran, and Iran is down here, the purplish line. Iran has never been a major importer of arms in the past two decades or so. Even when there was no arms embargo, it has been economically seen very difficult for Iran to import uh, major arms in large numbers. Very different, again, from uh, Saudi Arabia, which sees a very steep increase in arms imports over the past 10 years, uh, a, a level which will be sustained based on the major contracts which it still has uh, open standing. Um, I'll leave the other ones just for your imagination. Well, I should actually mention Qatar. Qatar, almost no arms imports here. Then it starts. And Qatar, in the last 10 years, has really set about in a massive armament program. It had a very small uh, armed forces. For example, it had like 10 combat aircraft. 
it is now going up to 96. That's a tenfold increase in the strength of its air force just based on the numbers. And then we don't even talk about the quality uh, of the equipment. And quality of the equipment is, of course, very important to take into this discussion too. Um, here we see a, a kind of an overview of the kind of we we weapons that are being acquired. Also here, um, when we look at Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the UAE, they invest in high-tech equipment, uh, the highest tech they can lay their hands on, which is not the highest tech in the world because the US is not willing to supply them that, but it is a very high quality. Uh, um, anyway, and important in that is that um, these countries have especially invested uh, also in weapons, which gives them a longer reach a longer reach in terms that they can see further um, and, and hear more at a greater distance, including with the help of Swedish equipment, for that matter, that they have um, strategic airlift, transport aircraft, with which they can supply, for example, proxies in Libya or Somalia or in Syria. And they also have the weapons to reach further into uh, other countries if they would want to do so. And of course, in the UAE and Saudi Arabia, those weapons are, for example, being deployed uh, in Yemen. Now, very shortly, external players are important here too. They are the uh, uh, suppliers of the arms and therefore they play, play a very important role in the militarization of the region. Why is that? Well, the demand in the region is very high. Sorry, one back. Um, the demand in the region is very high. Saudi Arabia, the UAE belong to the top five arms importers in the world. Saudi Arabia even is the, is, is the second one. Um, Egypt is also an important play player here. It's not in the Gulf, but it's important to mention here because Egypt can acquire arms partly because it gets funding from Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So it just shows that this is an important market. And therefore, the arms suppliers in the world are very keen to play a role here and to, to take on this market. In particular, the European states have very clearly primarily economic reasons to do so. And you can see that the UK, France, Germany, Italy are some of the major players in the, the Arab Gulf states. Uh, on the other side, uh, or, or then of course we also see the, U the USA, which is by far the most important supplier of arms. And there, of course, it's more a combination of economic reasons for arms exports to the region and uh, foreign policy uh, uh, reasons and, and objectives. Whereas Iran, uh, the little it has been able to import in re recent years, has been mainly dependent on Russia and China, um, and we haven't really much information about anyone else supplying. Now, having said all this, of course, as I said, there are other ways to look at militarization in the region. Uh, it would be important to look at uh, how, how states like Saudi Arabia or Iran are supplying weapons to proxies, whether it's Iran supplying to Hezbollah or whether it is Saudi Arabia supplying to rebels um, in Syria. Um, also important would be to look at the role of the major external uh, players, such as, for example, the US, which of course has a major mi military presence in the re re region and also uses that. Now, to conclude, um, it is very clear that military capabilities are built up, in particular in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the UAE. Um, I think it's important to also stress that these weapons are no longer just bought as prestige or just for the direct defense of these countries themselves, um, but that they are actually used. 
all four of these countries have been involved in military com combat in the past five years or so, and many of the other states in the region and in the mi Middle East, that's the same for them true. Only Oman has really stayed out of such, con such use of uh, military force. Um, so that is a concern, and, and so I think the perception is very clear in the region that military capability is an essential tool to, um, uh, to, 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 to address the, the perceived threats to both the internal security, uh, attempts by opposition to change the political system, either with force or with other ways, uh, but also to pursue the, the, the foreign policy objectives that the states in the regions have, um, in particular within the uh, context of uh, rivalry in, in the region. So concluding a remark, I think the tools for um, warfare are there and are increasingly there. And I think it's really important then to uh, consider how big the risk is that these tools will actually be used, that what we see in Syria and Yemen might be replicated also elsewhere. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. A um, few follow-up questions. If we look at the armaments and then of uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE and you say they're not bought just for defense, and they're probably not just bought for the war, ongoing war in Yemen now. If you analyze the, the capabilities that they have, what kind of a warfare are they sort of preparing for? Yeah. Um, I, I, I kind of already alluded to that too when I talked about the types of equipment which uh, we see are being supplied there. Um, and I'll try to be not too technical, at least to explain it, but. Um, for example, you see a country like Saudi Arabia, which has heavily invested in a whole package of equipment which it can strike deep into a neighboring country or even a further away country if it wanted to do so. A bit similar to what uh, the kind of military capability that Israel has built up and has used so often in the past. Um, so they would, have, they would have the combat air aircraft, but they would also have the missiles with it. Um, and missiles with a relatively long range. Often we talk about the missile arsenal of Iran as a threat to the region. Now I can fully agree and fully understand that people perceive it as such, but I think the Iranians will perceive the Saudi Arabian military strength and particularly that growing arsenal of long range weapons, aircraft, missiles, tanker aircraft, which can actually then fuel the combat air aircraft so they have an even longer range, um, uh, satellites which are being supplied so Saudi Arabia, the UAE can actually see and find targets deep inside, for example, Iran or Yemen or even as far away as Libya. Um, other types of ears and eyes, sensors, uh, aircraft or other types which can be used to, to um, engage into a long-range uh, type of warfare. Not maybe an invasion, but at least the kind of things which Israel does, the punishing. You hit us, we hit you back. Think about the possibility that, and this is interesting here, we, we, uh, if you look at the picture up there, it's the launch of a missile by the Houthis from Yemen uh, to, uh, to Riyadh. If that missile would have hit um, an actual uh, target, uh, like uh, the airport, but then actually the arrival hall or a royal palace, and would have killed many or some important people, how would Saudi, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, together with the UAE, have reacted? How big is the risk that they think, okay, we have the equipment. We can now actually engage in like a punishment action. 
target, pinpoint target, something in Iran to show that we are not to be uh, messed around with. How big is that risk? And they have, at least on paper, the tools to do so. Whether they can actually implement it, whether they actually have the, the skills to do what Israel has done in the past, that's yet another thing. But it's, it's the question whether they believe it themselves and whether they're willing to go about with that. And when we talk about proxies, as you mentioned, and, and the, the big issues of whether Iran is, is procuring um, um, missiles to the Houthi rebels in Yemen, is it possible to track down whether it's true or not? And if we talk about the arms deliveries from Saudi Arabia and UAE to proxies, what can be um, evidence-based here? Yeah, it's a very good question, and it's exactly... Um, uh, uh, the problem to do that is exactly the reason that I wouldn't present you with any statistics on that, and that I'm very careful when I present these things. Um, it's extremely time-consuming to, to actually uh, uh, compile relevant information and even more to establish if it is truthful, if it is really, if the images or other types of information which is available um, actually are made there where people say they have been made, if the weapons really are there or if there is something behind it. To say that Saudi Arabia acquires major arms, that we can easily prove. There's no doubt about that. But to say that the Houthis have received missiles from Iran requires more. Now, it happens to be that in the case of the Houthis, there's a United Nations panel um, which actually investigates such matters. And they've been very careful up until now. And they've said, we're not sure. We find it unlikely even that such big items could be smuggled through the cordon which Saudi Arabia and, and the others within the coalition have created there. H how would that happen? But in the end, based on the evidence which they have seen now, based on the kind of images which the Houthis themselves uh, put on the internet and elsewhere, based on the uh, information they have received from Saudi Arabia, etc., the evidence is mounting and even the panel, which is, again, very careful in its statements, it's very politicized in that sense, has said, no, we actually believe that Iran is involved in supplying at least the equipment and the knowledge to create these missiles, to build these mi missiles inside Ye Yemen. So that's kind of a proof. Saudi Arabia and Syria, there is lots of kind of circumstantial e evidence. Weapons turn up there, which you wonder where did they come from. There are other sources of information. So that something is going on, that's quite sure. But the volumes and the size and who exactly within Saudi Arabia has taken which decision, that remains very unclear. So that's why one has to be very careful with making that analysis, even though it is extremely important because that kind of proxy warfare, that arming and supporting of different groups um, is really undermining the, the security and stability in, in the region. So it, it requires more knowledge and more research to really uh, give a, a detailed answer to this, even though we, we do know it's going on. Dina, you wanted to have a quick comment? Actually, just a quick question, if, uh, if I may. You mentioned that they were, uh, that uh, obviously that they're purchasing this equipment, the equipment is, is good quality, but as we can see in Yemen, the way they're conducting the war, so clearly they're still getting their head around how to wage war with this new yes. equipment that they have. Um, so my question is, how fast are they learning from what they're doing in Yemen? I mean, do we see any indications that they're learning from their mistakes in Yemen, in Syria, mm. in Libya? Very good question. Very hard for me to answer because, of course, that's the kind of 
information and knowledge which is very hard to get by. You can't really go there and ask the Saudis, like, how are you do, doing there? You know, every, every, everything fine. Have you now learned how to actually aim that bomb? You know, have you learned that you shouldn't aim at a hospital? Um, of course, there are indications coming, for example, from the UK government which say, well, you know, all those claims that they miss everything, it's not really true. We are helping them, we're supporting them, we're teaching them how to do this well. And I guess they do learn, and maybe that is a concern. Because though the initial invasion didn't go very well, or the inv initial intervention, I shouldn't call, 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 call it an invasion, um, in intervention didn't go so well, but they do learn over time. And by learning, they may also get more confident, and more confident they actually can do these things. And then there's the UAE, which has already more longer-term experience. The UAE has been involved in UN operations in Afghanistan and Bosnia, uh, which has been active in Libya. So they have a, a long, more longer-standing uh, have, had, have been able to learn more over a longer time um, and therefore probably more skilled and able to use the weapons they have. In particular also, and this is important, if they get sufficient support from outside. Without the support from outside, these countries wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah, that, that, that makes you ask, one ask the question whether, okay, they have the equipment, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, but do they have the personnel who can man them? Because we know that there are mercenaries from Colombia fighting the war in Yemen and Sweden. Yes. What's your analysis here? Again, a very difficult one. All the indications are that, yes, they still make use of mercenaries. Either they hire them from far away. So as you say, Colombian mercenaries have been reported, have been active in, um, in, in Yemen uh, on behalf of the UAE in that case, as far as I understand. Some form of mercenary uh, activity, you could say, is of course also the, um, uh, the, the, the fact that Saudi Arabia has succeeded in convincing Morocco and Sudan to also give a helping hand, and Jordan of course, so that's a, a kind of political mercenary force you could say, um, also because they are financed um, par partly by Saudi Arabia, at least we may presume that that's the case, we don't have any details there. Um, so it, this is a major uh, concern for Saudi Arabia, how to, to man all this equipment. It's possible, but it takes them a long time. In the past, um, Saudi Arabia was very much dependent on foreign workers, you could say, to man all this equip equipment. Now it seems that they are uh, operating more themselves, but a lot of the work, a lot of the maintenance, even the operational maintenance, as far as I know, is still being done by the companies that have supplied the equipment, the companies from the UK, the US, of course, and possibly also from other European states. Um, so they're very, still extremely dependent on foreign, uh, foreign uh, technology and skills and workers in that sense. Now, Hezbollah is one of the proxies of Iran, and they do have missiles, and they used them in the war in 2006, and, and obviously they have a longer age day, better precision. If this cold war in the region would lead to a hot regional war, God forbid, but if it would happen, what do we know about the capability of Hezbollah's missiles and the Iranian, what they have in, in Syria? Actually, I'm, 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 it, it's extremely hard to know. But the information we get there, uh, what I've seen at least, is primarily coming from Israeli sources. Hard to know if they really exaggerated that much. Um, I can very well believe that part of what they say is basically true. Um, so it would provide the Hezbollah with the means to uh, to terrorize uh, Israel with the use of, of these missiles. But on the other hand, if they use them, they also know that they're going to lose them very fast because the Israelis will hit very, back very very hard. Um, 
this is of course less relevant, that kind of proxy warfare less relevant for uh, the Gulf region with the exception of what the Houthis are managing to do increasingly towards um, towards Saudi Arabia. Um, but then you asked the question about how the, the missile force of Iran, mm -hmm. that probably is quite limited and it has a limited military value. It's not the kind of equipment which you're going to use to try to stop uh, a military force which is advancing or anything like that, because they're not precise enough. So they're, again, um, in that sense, they're more like Hezbollah can do towards I is Israel with shorter range mi missiles. Iran can do towards Saudi Arabia or the UAE by simply trying to hit the cities. Whether or not they hit a mi military base, that's not the point. They will scare them a lot. If they happen to hit the whatever the big tower tower in uh, Dubai, then then that will scare off the Emiratis. Um, for the time be being. Of course, it's, it's a weapon which they don't necessarily will want to use. They know that they will get it all back. But as a deterrent, uh, it has a very clear function. And the issue of the Iranian ballistic missiles is really one of the hot topics which is debated now with the Europeans and, and um, Trump, the Trump administration. And I think, I thank you there, Peter. The audience will have a chance to ask questions at the end. So, and I, it's... Quite normal to go from Peter now to Rusbe's um, presentation on what is Trump up to and how will Iran respond? Thank you very much and thank you for the invitation. Um, uh, it was very illuminating to listen to you because obviously to some degree you can say the confidence and the military cap capacities and capabilities bleed into what you politically think is feasible. Uh, and to some degree perhaps this conversation is depressingly repetitive because we could have had a somewhat similar conversation 10 years ago where you can say that there are uh, major uh, powers in the region who think confrontation is the only way for them to get the leverage that they want. And in this regard, uh, President Trump reminds us to some degree of 10 years ago uh, during the last years of uh, George Bush, also because literally speaking, some of the holdovers from the Bush administration are back into the circles of power. They hibernated in the think tanks and now they're kind of back. Now, um, so the, the, the conversation that you see in the media right now about whether uh, the Trump administration is going to certify the JCPOA, the agreement with Iran that limits its nuclear enrichment program, has to be put within this larger context. It's not necessarily primarily about the letter and content of the agreement as such, as much as what its political fallout has been since it was uh, concluded and signed in 2016, and more in uh, 2015, and more importantly than how that is interpreted. So you could say that for uh, Saudi Arabia and for Israel, uh, and for the Trump administration, the problem with the JCPOA isn't necessarily, obviously, that it does actually limit. Iran's enrichment program, which is something military intelligence in Israel has confirmed, and the IAEA confirms regularly. Uh, but the fact that it changes the strategic balance of the region and allows Iran to come in from the cold. So from the, if you look at the narrative in Riyadh and you look at the narrative in, in Tel Aviv and you look at the narrative that the Trump administration and many of the people in it have been building over the years is basically that the Obama administration failed in maintaining what they consider to be a chokehold on Tehran, uh, making Iran to concede more and more. And for some of them, obviously, the end goal is that basically the chokehold would kill off the Islamic Republic and there would be regime change, which is something that, for instance, 
primarily John Bolton, who is now back in, in political power, has advocated for a very long time. So from their perspective, the problem with the deal is not really the details of it. Donald Trump has not read the agreement. Uh, so that's not, you know, it's not, that's not where the problem lies. But it's more about what it means having Iran back into a power game that it's been excluded from. Uh, and there you see uh, how, the, how this idea now is that we need to reconfront Iran. We need to go back to confronting Iran and pushing it back. Uh, and to some degree, the idea was that we could do this and still be in the deal, because obviously the deal does not address Iran's regional policies, etc. Those are the things that were considered to be outside of the scope of the political framework which the deal was, was set in, but that is exactly what the Trump administration considers to be a failure. But um, I think if you're trying to understand then what is Trump actually capable of doing, you could basically say that he can continue doing exactly what he's doing now. He's keeping everyone on their toes. He doesn't have to leave the deal. He can just repetitively, every three months, think aloud about how bad this deal is, the, quote, stupidest deal ever made, uh, and say that I might or I might not certify the agreement. And that in itself will be enough to kill off, slowly but steadily, the commercial ties which underpin the political life of the agreement. Because for the Iranians, the commercial ties to the European Union is the primary incentive. And so if the Europeans are scared away from dealing with Iran because of Trump's inability to make up his mind, which I don't think is, you know, it's not that he literally doesn't know how to make up his mind, it's just keeping everyone on their toes. Uh, the deal might remain in a literal sense, but in effect, it will be dead. Now, what will happen then? Well, if it dies in practice, if not in a literal sense, how will it survive in Tehran? And I think that's one of the things where some would consider that to be a bad thing, if it dies in Tehran as well. But there are obviously those who think that it would be a good thing if it dies in Tehran. Because in a sense, the problem for the Trump administration right now is that if it decides to openly leave the JCPOA, everyone else who has signed this agreement, the rest of the Security Council of the United Nations and Germany, think that the deal works. And the organization set to confirm this on a kind of technical level, the IEA, has repeatedly confirmed that Iran is complying with the conditions of the agreement. So for the Trump administration, the ideal situation would be to basically um, tease or lure the Iranians into leaving. Because if America leaves and everyone else thinks that it works, they might try and find a way of keeping the agreement alive. But if Iran leaves the deal, then by definition it is dead. And if it dies that way, if it is clear to everyone that it's the Iranians who are in material breach of the agreement, then the sanctions from the UN will come back immediately. That is the construct of the JCPOA. And that, by definition, also means that the European Union has to comply. Because the foundation for the European Union sanctions was the UN uh, Security Council resolutions. So you could say that, in a sense, the Trump administration, since its inception, has been trying to get the Iranians, provoke the Iranians into leaving, because that would make their life so much easier. So far, the Iranians have not uh, been, if you will, dumb enough to fall for that trap. 
And so therefore, the Trump administration has instead increased the rhetoric about how bad this deal is in order to scare away European banks and, and finance and, and, and companies. And now we are at the stage where perhaps he will give it a coup de grace and just basically say, I'm out, hoping that that will create an avalanche uh, that will bury this agreement once and for all. Or he could just continue every three months to play Hamlet and say to be or not to be, uh, and everyone will, will remain uncertain about what's going to happen. Problem, of course, is that that uncertainty, even if it is constant, is bad enough to destroy the deal, in a sense, and it leaves the Europeans in a bind because Europe is the primary incentive for Iran to stay in the deal. And that's where we see now that the European Union, which managed to agree on designing and constructing and supporting this agreement, is now showing somewhat conflicting uh, signals. Uh, so what you're seeing is that Brussels is steadfast in its support for the agreement, while the big three, Germany, Great Britain, and France, have been somewhat more uncertain in their certainty uh, of the agreement because they are trying to find ways of getting Donald Trump to stay in the deal. Uh, you could say that this is a realistic approach. Uh, Europe has, since World War II, been in close agreement with the US almost on everything. And that agreement, that transatlantic bond is crucial for the European Union uh, in any respect you can imagine. And that in the long run, you cannot have this kind of agreement without the United, United States involved. The counter-argument would, of course, be that Donald Trump does not play by the rules that the Europeans and the Americans have spent 60, 70 years to build. And therefore, the idea that you could somehow make him play ball according to the rules that we set up together, I think is probably not going to go anywhere. And you could say, well, it's worth a try. Let's try it. And if it doesn't work, then it doesn't work. No. Because you could also say that when you're trying to do this, you're basically saying, and this is what Macron and Merkel have said to Trump, they're basically telling him, we will help you design new sanctions on Iran on non-nuclear related issues as a way of showing that we understand your concerns regarding Iran, because they are also our concerns, which they are. Uh, and that way, you see that we can play ball with you, then please stay in the agreement. If that fails, the cost of it is that the Iranians are watching their European supposed partners pander, if you will, to Donald Trump on implementing new sanctions on Iran before the benefits of the actual agreement, which Iran is complying to, has reached its full height for Tehran. So the Europeans are risking at the moment of basically ruining a victory that they helped achieve themselves thinking that it's going to make Donald Trump stay in the agreement. And they might end up in the worst case scenario where Donald Trump is not going to stay in the agreement and the Iranians have no confidence for their European partners. And I think that would be from a kind of non-proliferation perspective and from the perspective of the kind of changes we would like to see in Iran and the relationship Iran has with the EU in primarily uh, is very pessimistic and very bad, obviously. But the other aspect, and that's my final point, when you come out of the whole who is going to agree and who is going to abrogate and blah, 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 if you come out of it and look at the regional context, you can say that if this agreement were to die, 
we are going to be in a worse situation than we were before the agreement was signed. Because before the agreement was signed, there was hope that diplomacy could achieve something and that confidence could be built. It was a hope, but it hadn't been dashed yet. Right? It was actually realized. They did manage through diplomacy to reach a certain level of, of mutual trust. If the agreement now dies, everyone will go home not with aspirations of the future, but with a disappointment of failure, which they will, of course, blame on each other. So the fallout from that kind of situation, domestically, especially in Iran, could be very, very dire. And it will, of course, embolden, if you will, those elements in Saudi Arabia, United States, and Israel who think that a confrontation with Iran, militarily or otherwise, is the only way of finding a solution to the problem of Iran in the region. The Europeans are really key stakeholders here, as you clearly mentioned, and you've done research in, in Paris and know it well. If we try to analyze what is Macron's thinking right now, I talked to a British analyst who said, I'm really afraid that Macron is repeating the mistakes of Tony Blair in 2003. He thought, Blair, that he at the time could tame George W. Bush. By abiding with him, he could soften U.S. policies. But he ended up in a war that was catastrophic for the region against international law. And this uh, analyst was saying, I'm, I, I fear that Macron might do the same mistake is if he has to choose between siding with Trump, a Trump who withdraws from the agreement, or sticking to the Iran nuclear deal. What's your analysis of that? Well, I think uh, your uh, uh, British interlocutor is probably right. I think there is an element here where people overthink Donald Trump, and they are too clever by half. I think uh, it's not that things are not complicated, but sometimes you also have to remember that there are very mundane and, if you will, irrational reasons why politicians do what they do, uh, and the end result is not necessarily going to be their intention. So the idea that you can somehow triangulate Donald Trump as if he were the constituency in an election where you can find all kinds of ways of, of uh, both pushing and pandering to him, and that somehow will, will, will um, you know, woo him to your side, I think is probably very, very optimistic. Because, and this is, has nothing to do with, with uh, if you will, it's not a principle. It's about the fact that in Europe at the moment, I think people are basically underestimating the huge changes that are taking place in the US on a domestic level which immediately plays into foreign policy. Because there is no such thing as foreign policy uh, distinct from domestic policy. Because there's no one in the world who gets elected on foreign policy or their popularity elsewhere. If that was the case, Barack Obama would have been reelected four or five times because the Germans love him. H has no meaning whatsoever. It's what's happening in Kansas and Michigan that decides who is going to get elected in the US. So the idea that Macron can come in and somehow find a way of getting Donald Trump to be less Donald Trump on this particular issue, I think is, is wildly uh, over-optimistic. But you could also put it in a, in a much more long-term perspective. This is not really about Iran. You could, just, you could say Iran is an irrelevant country, it's far too small a market, and it has a leadership which talks from both sides of their mouth, 
and they can't be trusted, why should we bother with them? The US is more important, which is all true, if you like. But the problem here is that long-term, strategically, the EU at the moment is not capable or haven't kind of shifted mental gears into understanding that it needs to change partly the way it calculates US positions because the US has changed. And you're going to need to do that because of steel tariffs, because of the Paris Agreement, because of a lot of other things that you could say are much closer to European hearts than what happens with Iran. Uh, so whether on this issue or some other, you're going to have to kind of step up to the plate, focus yourself, and figure out exactly what is it that you want, rather than constantly looking to DC as a way of, of understanding where you can go. Can you elaborate on that? What's your policy advice to the Europeans here? Well, I mean, this is, uh, the, 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 literally speaking, this is not rocket science, and this is not something I came up with, so I can't take credit for that. But I mean, even if you look at the EU itself, two years ago, uh, High Representative Mogherini came out with a strategic paper about what the strategy of the European Union should be in the next coming years. Uh, and there you find, in my opinion, one of the more important innovations, if you will want to call it that, strategic autonomy. Now, it's primarily used when it comes to defense policy. The fact that the EU needs to, to find a way of funding its own defense. But that, again, leave out Donald Trump. That is something that is partly coming out of the fact that Americans have been complaining for years about the Europeans constantly assuming that the Americans are going to save the bacon if something happens. Because European countries are not willing to spend money on defense. But I think it's much broader than that. It's about to what extent there is going to be strategic autonomy for the EU as a foreign policy actor, not just when it comes to defense, but to all the other things that should work before you get to a point where your defense matters. And so should European governments, I mean, how important really is the, the, the sticking to the Iran nuclear deal for the European governments in terms of strategic investment here? There is a joke, if you will, a running joke between people like myself who actually support the European Union. That it's, even if you like the European Union and you support the European Union, it's very difficult to love the European Union. Yes. Because it tends to serially disappoint you again and again and again, because it's very difficult for 28 member states to overcome their national sovereignty and the jealousy with which they, they, they defend their uh, national sovereignty to come to a common position that actually means something. The European Union tends to think that the rest of the world should wait while it figures out how 28 can agree on something. But that's not how the world works. So I think in that sense, what again, this is just one of many issues where the European Union can either rise to the occasion or fall. And that's not just the question of finding uh, independence, if you will, vis-a-vis -vis the United States. It's also about how is it going to be taken seriously as a unified actor vis-a-vis -vis Russia and China. And Trump, I mean, he wants to have an, uh, a deal, uh, obviously, with North Korea, whereas he might withdraw from the Iranian deal. How can we read these two different uh, lines well, as a historian, you always want to kind of have your handle on the break because people tend to think that because there's a Twitter exchange, suddenly everything is going to change. Now, obviously, what's happening between South and North Korea is very, very interesting. And we can debate how much the Americans have helped or not in getting us to that point. But the idea that there's going to be a meeting between head of state of North Korea and, and the head of state of the United States does not in itself mean that there is a deal in the making. 
we also have to remember there's a long history where both the North Koreans have reneged on some things they promised, but also that the United States has reneged on things it uh, promised to do in order to get the North Koreans to give up some parts of, the, of their nuclear weapons program. So I think you can say that, in my opinion, what's happening with the Iran deal is not going to help the credibility of the United States as an actor in those negotiations. And that is something that has really nothing to do with what you think about the argument, because it has to do with something that is a much more uh, structural commitment. If you look at what the French say to the Americans now and what people in the United States are saying, you cannot have a government as a state, you cannot have a state agreeing to something, and then with the change of government, everything is up in the air again. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't even go back to whether you like this particular deal or not. That's not how you do statecraft. And you were saying that the, uh, the Iranian regime is speaking with both sides of the mouth. Can you explain how decision-making might be made in Tehran after the May 12th? You have a couple of hours. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I mean, again, you, you can put it like this. Uh, most countries don't have a unified foreign policy in the sense that there's just one person speaking. That's, that's the kind of a theoretical political science way of doing things. But that's not how it really works. The difference is that the Iranians are structurally inept at message discipline, as it's called. So basically, everyone and their cousin who thinks they are someone speaks out. And then depending on which newspaper picks it up, it becomes big news. But as others have pointed out, there are now much more institutional boundaries for some of these systemically vital decisions than it was, say, 10 years ago. That doesn't mean that there is harmony, that everyone agrees, or that the process is transparent or predictable. But you have, for instance, the Supreme National Security Council in Iran, which, in a sense, by accident, ended up with a portfolio of the nuclear issue because how much it was used as political football between the factions in the country. And now that has, in a sense, become institutionalized, which is a good thing, because it allows for somewhat more predictability in how things are done. The only thing you can say as a rule of thumb is that the Iranian factions, like factions in many other political systems, tend to use any issue as political football to stick it to each other. But in general, when they are confronted with something that they consider to be an existential threat, like the risk of an American invasion after 2003, they tend to get their stuff together, at least for that moment, and reach vital decisions in order to safeguard the survival of themselves which in the end is what it boils down to. So to answer the question of the, the, the headline of this seminar, is there a risk of this Cold War going hot? What's your, what's your answer? My answer is that people miscalculate their intentions and their actions do not correlate, uh, and that you shouldn't trust politicians to know what they're doing. Brinkmanship is often an illusion because they're always half a step over the brink when they think they're playing along the line. So I think in that sense, I am structurally pessimistic when it comes to these kind of scenarios, simply because I don't trust the players to be skillful enough to, to make it away from the brink. But we saw the case with Israeli intelligence, which was actually the break on Netanyahu some years ago, uh, preventing him from going to war on Iran. So there is more than the politicians here. Yes, and I mean, that's in a sense, you can say it's a, partly perhaps a, a bitter pill to swallow, but it's the 
civil servant professionals sometimes who are keeping back the democratically elected leaders from doing really yeah. stupid things. That's hard to swallow. Yes. Um, the panelists, do you want to ask, ask anything? No? So thank you, Ruzbe. And um, please, Dina, the Arabian Peninsula. Thank you. Um, so I'll, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the, uh, the Gulf states and Iran and um, the uh, now very exciting rivalry that's going on in the region. Um, I'll begin a little bit by talking about how the Gulf states view Iran. So Iran is, as everybody knows, viewed as a very disruptive power in the region uh, because of its involvement in uh, regional conflicts, the uh, links, um, at times quite deep links, it has with minorities in the region, uh, sometimes Shia minorities. Um, and while some of this perception is very much warranted, uh, much of it is also blown out of proportion. So Yemen, for example, uh, in my opinion, is a good example of, of how Iran's role is uh, at times blown out of proportion, or initially at least was, and now a few years uh, down the line, Iran has actually played into um, that perception that it controls everything in the region or, or has a stake in Yemen, for example. Um, Iran's relations with its Gulf Arab neighbors really depend uh, on what country we're talking about. Um, so the perception is that the Gulf states all dislike Iran and Iran dislikes all of them. Uh, it's actually a lot more nuanced than that. There, um, with Saudi Arabia, there has been a multi-tiered, uh, long-standing rivalry. Um, and, and this rivalry has you know, been happening on an economic level, religious level, political level, military level. Um, but what's interesting is even um, between these two countries who have had a very rough relationship, uh, even between them, they've managed to be pragmatic at times. And there have been periods where they've been able to engage, uh, have constructive dialogue, and actually resolve their issues when their interests are directly affected. Um, and then with the other countries in the Gulf, it suddenly becomes a lot more difficult and a lot murkier. So for example, with, uh, with the UAE, um, it's, a, it's a very interesting relationship because Abu Dhabi uh, follows very much um, Saudi Arabia's line, whereas some of the em other emirates uh, under the leadership of Dubai uh, have a much more positive relationship with Iran um, and by virtue of you know, the number of Iranians that live there and the, and the exchanges and the e economic links between them. Um, the Omanis uh, have a much more positive view of Iran. Uh, the, the history of um, relations between Oman and Iran has also been incredibly positive. Iran helped out uh, the Omanis in the 70s during an uprising, and the Omanis have really remembered that. Uh, and so they're much more pragmatic in their views of Iran, often saying, well, Iran is a neighbor that's in the region. We can't get rid of it, so we have to work with it. Um, and then Qatar and Kuwait kind of sit somewhere in the middle. Uh, they uh, like to consider themselves mediators, um, and, and they really try to fly that flag of, of mediating between um, Iran and the um, more hardline uh, Gulf Arab states. There's a number of reasons for that. There's a that there's just a general tone of pragmatism in their foreign policy. There's a lot of Iranians that live, uh, particularly in, in a country like Kuwait. Um, the Shias in both countries are relatively well integrated. So there's really no reason to have this antagonism with Iran uh, in those two countries. Um, they also harbor this policy of, of uh, no conflict. Um, and with Qatar in particular, uh, Iran and Qatar have been incredibly pragmatic in their relationship because they've had to manage a shared resource, the gas fields, 
um, which they've had to manage jointly. And so they've had to continuously talk to one another about managing it. They've had to de-escalate any time there's been a crisis um, surrounding the gas fields. And so this is really, you know, just having to talk to each other and exposure to one another, it's really been very good in de-escalating tensions between, um, between both of them. The gas fields have uh, forced them to understand each other better, and they've really helped dispel a lot of misperceptions that the, um, that the two countries may have had towards one another. So clearly what this shows is the more exchanges, the more dialogue, the more you're forced to deal with your enemy or the other side, the more positive results you end up having, despite at times not wanting to. Um, in terms of where what's been happening over the last few years, so when President Rouhani came to power in Iran, one of the main things that he wanted to do was improve relations with his Gulf Arab neighbors. In fact, he made it a foreign policy priority. And so he began to uh, conduct a campaign of outreach towards his uh, Gulf Arab neighbors. So I think it was in December 2013, the Foreign Minister Zarif went on a serious charm offensive in the GCC, and he visited Kuwait, um, he visited Oman, and the UAE. Uh, he did the same in, in 2014, but the problem is that ultimately, a year and a half later, the um, hanging of Sheikh Nimr in Saudi Arabia, so a Shia uh, Sheikh, had drastic consequences on uh, the relationship, on the, on the relations between the two sides of the Gulf. Um, there was the, uh, the issue with the Saudi embassy, and then um, uh, the Gulf Arab states, most of them removed their ambassadors from Iran, and things kind of went downhill from there. And so this basically rendered moot any effort uh, on Iran's part to, uh, to conduct dialogue with its neighbors. There was uh, a lot of personal frustrations in Iran because they were like, we've put in all this effort um, to sit around the table with you and, and this is what happens in the end, is that there's no desire on the other side to engage. Uh, and so there started to be a lot of um, pressure from the hardliners in Iran as well, uh, which meant that any kind of call for engagement with the Gulf Arabs in Tehran was then at great personal cost to the person that, that said we should be talking uh, to, to the Arabs. Um, and then the Gulf Arabs uh, were of the mind that they didn't really want to dialogue with Iran from what they called a position of weakness. They felt at the time that they were not in a strong standing, that what they were asking of Iran, which was to basically unilaterally remove itself from, uh, from Arab affairs, was something that Iran wasn't, obviously wasn't going to do, um, particularly as a precondition to negotiations. Uh, and so, Dialogue basically, the idea of dialogue stalled. And with the rise of uh, Mohammed bin Salman in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, this only worsened because the animosity between the two sides became very much personally driven. It became a personality issue. So MBS, as everybody likes to call him, personally dislikes Iran and, and doesn't trust um, the country. So there is no desire to try to overcome their differences at the moment today. Um, so what's Iran done? Well, basically, Iran uh, has kind of taken a step back and has decided that uh, there's no point in spending the cost to engage in dialogue at the moment. And it did so also because it was witnessing the beginnings of uh, internal infighting within the GCC, which has led to what we've now seen as the GCC crisis last summer. So these internal tensions within G the GCC are nothing new. They've been going on since the GCC was put together, you know, three decades ago, I think. 
Um, so, so there's nothing. There was nothing surprising about them when they first emerged uh, about a year, a year and a half ago. Um, in fact, the way that the GCC conducts policy on Iran is a good example of how there's always been tensions between them because they've never been able to agree on um, on how to conduct policy as a group vis-a-vis -vis Iran. So Iran was watching and closely monitoring these tensions. And I think the, the best um, kind of exposure of these tensions was the conflict in Yemen. Um, this was the beginnings of the real infighting within, within the GCC. Because although they went in as a coalition, uh, it was unclear how much the other countries wanted to get involved. Everybody was very suspicious of Saudi Arabia's intentions. Uh, and so you had countries like Oman who decided not to get involved in the first place, Qatar that got only very sent uh, the smallest amount of troops it could to basically say, okay, we're there, but we don't want to be too involved. Um, and then the Emiratis ended up uh, in, a, in, a, in loggerheads with Saudi Arabia because their interests fundamentally diverged. The Emiratis were very much worried about the south of the country and the spread of um, Islamism and the Muslim Brotherhood, whereas Saudi Arabia was obviously worried about the Houthis and pushing back the Iranians. And so these tensions became very obvious, and the Iranians noticed them. So what did the Iranians do? They kind of changed uh, their policy uh, in the short term, thinking, okay, well, we can't engage with the Gulf Arabs as a bloc. So, and, and we're um, involved in too many fronts on the region, and we can't take any more hits. So what we're going to do is then engage with the Gulf Arabs that are willing to engage with us. Um, so Iran began, you know, a more active outreach, for example, towards the Omanis, towards the Kuwaitis who, who traveled to Iran about a year ago, um, offering this, uh, you know, potential roadmap towards a dialogue, which the Iranians received very, um, very well um, and didn't pan out in the end. But, um, and then the same with Qatar. And so when the crisis with Qatar happened last summer, for the Iranians, it was like a godsend. You know, uh, and in fact, the Qatari officials came out and said a few months later, they said, you're literally handing us to the Iranians on a silver platter. And the Iranians saw that exactly like that. For them, it was a very easy, cheap way to say, hey, we're the defenders of the oppressed. And clearly, the Qataris are being oppressed right now by their bigger um, neighbor. So we need to step in and help out. So Iranian officials came out and made a number of statements um, in favor of the Qataris, in favor of defending the Qataris, uh, and then they started making food shipments. So, you know, clearly trying to offset the effect of the uh, Qatari and Emirati boycott as much as they could. So, going forward, I think um, it's likely that the Iranians have decided this policy of picking apart uh, the Gulf Arabs is working so far. Um, I think in rhetoric and in public, they're going to continue calling for engagement. But it's clear, and, and you have to see this from an Iranian official perspective, it's clear that no Iranian is going to accept um, uh, removal, unilateral removal from all Arab affairs as a precondition for negotiation. So while that is a precondition, no Iranian is going to engage in dialogue with, the, with Saudi Arabia and its allies as a group. But they will continue to talk to each individual neighbor um, and use that to, to their benefit. In the meantime, on the other side of the Gulf, I think that the... GCC is no longer what it was, um, and I don't think uh, now, you know, soon to be a year after the beginning of the crisis, I don't think it will ever return to what it was either, because the animosity between uh, Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the Emirates in particular 
uh, and actually more the Emirates than Saudi Arabia, interestingly enough, has reached you know, fever pitch. I mean, I was reading an article the other day that was really interesting that was um, saying that the Emiratis have reportedly been thinking about uh, ways to short the Qatari currency uh, to basically make it difficult for the Qataris to, to continue um, resisting the blockade, so for, for their economy to, to go downhill. Um, so the, the things that the Emiratis are thinking about in terms of trying to destroy their, their supposed regional ally is just, it's on another level. So I don't think we're going to see the GCC go back to what it was before. Um, so things don't look good. Thank you, Dina, for... <laughs> I mean, thank you for explaining the, in a short, short um, time the complex world of the GCC or the Arabian Peninsula. Um, Pompeo was in Riyadh just recently, and he said to the Saudis, enough. Alas, we want you to um, resume uh, ties with Qatar. And both countries are allies of the US, so it's, in a sense, it's very uh, embarrassing for the US. What do you think is the price that the Qataris will have to pay for the Saudis to resume relations? Simply put, the price that they have to pay is one that the, no Qatari is willing to pay, which is why I'm saying I don't think we'll ever find ourselves in a situation where the GCC can act as a block again. Um, I think that the, I think what's happening is from the part of the Saudis, thanks to the fact that they have someone like MBS in power right now, they're really trying to show the rest of the world that they're a force to be reckoned with, that they know what they're doing, both domestically and in foreign policy. Um, and so they can't be seen to, to you know, lose face um, in, 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 what they're, in some of their you know, endeavors in the region. So that's valid for Qatar. It's valid for Yemen, uh, where they're refusing to accept that there are some things that they can't win. And so they're refusing any kind of dialogue um, to resolve the conflict. So that's what's happening on the, on the one hand. And then the other problem is uh, that Saudi isn't the only player anymore. Um, when the GCC was a bloc under Saudi leadership, it was easier to convince them because basically as long as you convince the Saudis, then everybody else would toe the line even if they weren't happy. Today, that's not possible anymore. You have a bunch of smaller countries that are actually, that whose, whose power and reach and influence goes beyond technically what it should, given their size um, in the region. So both Qatar and the, um, uh, and the Emirates are two very real contenders in, in terms of, you know, a new power pole um, in the region. And uh, the Emiratis are never going to accept um, to stand down today. They're never going to, you know, if the Saudis turned around and said, okay, guys, you need to, you need to settle down and go sit in the corner of the room and let me make this, the decision now, the Emiratis won't take that anymore. So you have these new players that have their own interests um, and that, that need to defend their own interests, and the Emiratis are, are you know, the main example. Um, and their problem with Qatar is a long-standing issue. It's not something that dates back to six months ago. It's something that dates back years, and, and is a, is, it's a fundamental problem between the two countries. And so that's why I don't think it'll be resolved anytime. And we t when we talk about the UAE, it's basically always Abu Dhabi that we think of because they have the political and economic power. And it's uh, the, the Crown Prince uh, uh, Mohammed bin Nayef, who is often seen uh, as the uh, sort of a role model for uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman in uh, Riyadh. Do you think we should shed more light on the role of the UAE here? 
Absolutely. I mean, I think um, I think the keeping an eye out for what the UAE is doing and what it's trying to achieve is is one of the most interesting things to look at in the region at the moment. Because, like I said, there really is this sense of there's the growing self-awareness on the part of the the um, Emirati governments and officials and Emiratis in general, uh, and and that's coinciding with growing capabilities. And so, not only do they know that they have these capabilities. Um, now they know how to, they're starting to learn how to use them because they have more experience, as we were saying, than the, than the Saudis in terms of use of their hardware, military hardware. And then on the other hand, they have incredible power and influence um, in places like Washington and Europe. And they've been cultivating this for years behind the scenes. And it's only now that we're seeing, um, you know, email leaks and things like that that really point to just how much influence they have. And so, yes, a lot of it today comes out and it's about the Trump administration, but none of this is new. I mean, for example, the Emirati ambassador in Washington is a guy who's been there for a decade, so he's had links to every administration over the last 10 years. Um, so they really are, you know, a, a force to watch in the region. And, and the fear is that they're going to become overly confident and, um, and that they're going to kind of start stumbling as a result of that. So when we look at the arms procurement of the UAE, what, what are their plans? Well, so this is the thing with the region, right? Um, or at least in my perspective it is. Uh, there are no plans, no long-term plans. The plans are major, um, you know, plans that anybody wants to have. Increase power, increase influence, be important. But beyond that, I'm not sure they know what they want to achieve. Um, today, I think the Gulf Arab states just want to make sure that um, everybody realizes that they're important countries um, and that they get a say in what happens in the region. They don't just depend on the US for security, for example. That they're, um, they would like to convince everybody that they're self-sufficient, which is why they're uh, conducting these military forays in the, in the region. Um, but I'm not sure, oh, and also that they wanna push back Iran. When you ask them, what do you mean, push back Iran? How much? What would you like to contain it to? Would you like to have dialogue once you have contained it? They don't have a plan for what they want after that. And to be fair, I'm not sure the Iranians do either. So. Mm. I think we're going to invite you to ask questions, but I have one final question to you, Dina. I think it's right to say that the animosity between Saudi Arabia and Iran, it's driven by personalities here with the Mohammed bin Salman's deep uh, mistrust of Iran. And, and, and as compared to the times when late uh, President Rafsanjani and late King Abdullah used to have very cordial relations and meetings outside and in, in Saudi Arabia. But to what extent is actually the change of mind in Saudi Arabia sort of strategic? Um, one of the meetings that I went to at Cypri just recently was with the very important Prince Turki al-Faisal, uh, from Saudi Arabia, and this meeting was on the record, so I can quote him there. And um, he used to be the head of the Saudi intelligence, and he was actually talking about the very warm relations between Rafsanjani and King Abdullah at the mm -hmm. time. Now, I said, it's not possible to have relations with Iran because after the storming of the Saudi embassy in Tehran, they came up with no excuse. So how, how, how could, could we I mean, have relations with them? And he is also expressing sort of a support of withdrawal from the GCPOA from Trump's side. 
so is there a sort of a strategic rethinking in Riyadh in terms of um, what's happening in Iran? Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think it goes that far. I think there's a lot of, of rethinking in Riyadh about what they want to do domestically, about how they want to you know, wean their economy off oil, uh, about how they want to be forced to reckon within the region. In terms of Iran, I don't think the thinking is that strategic. I really do think that the thinking is still we need to contain Iran. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.